This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Tuesday, December 1st, 2020. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation says, Minister Freeland looks to take the federal debt to infinity, if not beyond. We talked to an expert out of Washington, D.C. about cultures who do not put their loved ones into nursing homes. And we explore how Variety Village kids are becoming collateral damage in this COVID pandemic lockdown. All of this starts now. Right now, we could even just as easily uh, <laughs> title this piece, uh, Spending Gone Wrong. The government uh, rather profligate yesterday in announcing their budget update. Uh, and I see where Aaron Woodrig heads the Canadian Taxpayers Federation in an op-ed piece says it's official. The Trudeau government's taken the federal deficit from $19 billion to $381 billion in just nine months. How is that happening? Well, let's find out. Aaron Woodrick is with us here on The Oakley Show, heads of Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Aaron, how are you keeping? I'm doing okay. I'm still a little bit shell-shocked from yesterday, John. Well, and they're doing all of this in the absence of a true budget. Should that be a concern? It is. I mean, this is a really incomplete document. I mean, I understand why they didn't have one in the spring. Things were changing very quickly. But most other G7 countries, most provinces, they've all managed to put budgets together in the last few months. And yet the Trudeau government hasn't. And, and all this update does is really provide uh, you know, plans to make plans. And some of those plans are very bizarre. I mean, one thing that really caught my eye is they, they promised to spend almost $100 billion in borrowed money after the emergency passes, and they haven't decided what to spend it on. So I thought that was a very weird way to, to sort of make a budgeting document, sort of figure out how much you want to spend, and then later on try and figure out things to spend it on. Well, do you think they're doing this under the veil of the pandemic, figuring, you know, the numbers are so uh, astronomical now, nobody's going to pay any mind or uh, really notice, you know, that a couple of billion here and there is just a rounding error at this point? I think there's part of that. I mean, the argument that they make and many make is that there's a lot of necessary spending right now. That's true, but it doesn't blanket cover everything, including things that have nothing to do with the pandemic. And, you know, the government is talking about big ticket items down the road. These are things uh, uh, that they did not have money for before the pandemic. So it's a bit of a head scratcher to think when your deficit was only $19 billion, you couldn't afford it. Now we're up to almost $400 billion, but now is the time to splash out on brand new permanent programs that have nothing to do with the pandemic? Yeah, you know, uh, we can't afford it. And yet the Prime Minister earlier today, when queried about it, says we can't afford it, as opposed to, say, uh, people taking out or drawing on their personal line of credit, uh, paying 19%. He says interest rates are so low uh, and it's sustainable for the longer term. So he says all this necessary spending can easily be uh, handled. What do you say? Well, I say that he, he's, he's betting a lot that he's going to get the right cards. I mean, this is like going to the casino, and because you have a lucky streak, you just assume, well, I'm going to have a lucky streak every night. We are very fortunate right now, John, that interest rates are low. It is the only reason we are not already in a full-blown crisis. So for most policymakers to just shrug and say, well, we should just base all our future planning on the assumption interest rates are going to stay low, I think that's, uh, that's very risky. You also say, Aaron, that... Uh They've mismanaged the money that they've thrown out the door. I mean, some of it necessary to be sure, but uh, when you break it down, uh, they're overspending. I mean, the return on the investment, as it were, or at least how many people, you know, they're covering for lost income, uh, they're more than adequately compensating for. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, people are familiar with the CERB program and, uh, and the wage subsidy. Well, that was designed, of course, to replace income loss during the pandemic. But the problem is they spent $54 billion on that, and they only replaced $21 uh, to $23 billion in, in uh, income loss. 
So they basically sent $2 out the door for every dollar that people lost. That is, that is more than uh, compensating people. That is borrowing money to give extra money to people. And I don't want to be too harsh on them because that was all done in a, in a real hurry. But, boy, we cannot afford to have them make every new program you know, miss the mark by that much. Well, they say the CRA, the revenuers, uh, will claw back some of that money. Are you confident of that? Yeah, in some cases they will, um, but uh, you know it's hard. To, it's harder to get it back than it is to stop it from going out the door. That's why I think going forward they have to design their programs uh, better. They've done some of that to their credit in this uh, fiscal update, but I, I worry a great deal that they refuse to be pinned down. Um, you know, on a lot of hard numbers. Again, Aaron Rudrick is with us. Uh, he's a federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Further to that question of whether or not the revenuers are going to be uh, diligent and. Uh, maybe efficient in getting some of this money back. They're hiring hundreds of additional auditors uh, to go after the offshore tax avoidance people or evasion people. I'm not sure which, but uh, do you think that's going to be effective? Well, look, I, everyone should pay the taxes they owe, so I don't have a lot of sympathy for people who are, who are in, you know, evading their taxes illegally. Uh, but I, I'm just not sure that that's going to, if the hope is they're going to uncover these, you know, untold billions to pay all the bills, that is a bit of a pipe dream. That there's just not that much money uh, in that pot that they're going to be able to claw back. So um, if anything, you know, generally... Government is going to have to take a bit of a haircut. Uh, government has been almost completely shielded from all the pain of this pandemic. People in the private sector you know, lost their job, lost their business. You work in government, you haven't lost a dime. And I'm just not sure that that imbalance is going to be able to hold uh, going forward. Yeah, it makes people cynical, if not out and out bitter, uh, looking back, you know, because they might have lost everything or uh, stand to. You mentioned that in your op-ed piece, rolling back the bureaucracy to the size it was in 2017. I had no idea it had grown to the extent it has in just uh, a few years under Justin Trudeau. But what would that save the coffers? Yeah, I mean, so if you just take it back three years, so Justin Trudeau had already been prime minister for two years. If you take it back to that level, that's $13 billion in savings right there. And that that is a tiny fraction in terms of spending reductions compared to what people in the private sector, some people are not just losing their job, taking massive pay cuts. I mean, we're talking here about the plan we put forward, John. It's a 15% pay cut, which I don't think is unreasonable given the pain that everyone is experiencing in the private sector. Again, with Aaron Woodrig from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Apropos yesterday's announcement from Christopher Freeland, the finance minister, this budget update and uh, where we stand. There's more money that's going to be poured into pet projects, as Aaron was saying. And yet uh, the carrying costs are low, so this is something that we can afford to do at this point. You're saying that uh, is maybe a wild assumption, or at least, uh, you know, you're hoping they're they're dealt the right cards, because in the event interest rates were to change, uh, potentially, where does that place us and have they done anything to mitigate potential damage no i mean it, it is essentially they're 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 betting the house on this john um they're just hoping interest rates will stay low and i'm just not sure that's a prudent plan i mean a one percent change just a one percent increase in the, in the effective interest rate that's 10 billion dollars in extra in, interest payments every year so they're really playing with fire if they're just going their whole strategy is to just hope interest rates don't rise they're probably safe for the next year i totally grant that but uh, you know, a lot of these these borrowing, they, they have borrowed um, issued debt that is going to be renewed in five years. So if interest rates are significantly higher in five years' time, watch out. It's going to be a very painful time. Yeah. And so finally, uh, you know, when we started, we talked about this being done in the absence of a budget. Uh, can we anticipate at least in the spring there'd be a budget with hard targets? I certainly hope so. I mean, the earlier, the better at this point. Um, it's been too long. It'll have been almost two years at this point between actual formal budgets. 
And uh, I think Canadians, uh, as much as they understand we're in an emergency, if other provinces and, and other countries can do it, our government has no excuse. They need to produce a budget. All right. Uh, it's an important consideration here in a time of pandemic where uh, there's so much money being uh, thrown about. Somebody's got to pay the piper, the taxpayer. Uh, obviously, generational debt is being incurred here and now. $1.1 trillion. Any idea, just quickly, Aaron, what we're owed, owing now uh, in terms of every man, woman, and child in Canada on the federal debt? I, I didn't even include the provincial. That's a whole other rail. And combined, I mean, we got to be in some serious hawk. We do. Federally alone, it's 25000 for every single Canadian. So if you add in provincial, it's about the same. It's almost $50,000 per person right now. And the mm-hmm. debt is going up $1 billion every day. Wow. All right. Uh, we could afford a lot of the the, the required, uh, if not just wanted, social programs with that kind of coin. Aaron, always a pleasure. Thanks for putting it into perspective. Uh, we'll talk down the road. Thanks a lot. You got it, Aaron Woodrick. He's the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. In Care Gone Wrong, Day 7, uh, Shiva Siddiqui uh, explaining how some cultures do not put their loved ones into nursing homes. And one of the principals with whom she addressed this phenomenon is Luma Sims, who has joined us on the line, fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Luma, good to have you on The Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you coming on because I, I did want to follow up. I was rather curious about uh, some of the, the salient points made in that uh, series that we've uh, had. Uh, we've just heard Care Gone Wrong. The cultures, uh, primarily Eastern cultures, feel stigmatized if they'd have to put their loved ones into a long-term care facility. Where is that derived? Why is that? Uh, where is that coming from? Sure. Um, a lot of that, uh, most of that, as a matter of fact, has to do with the fa- uh, with that um, those cultures are very family-based and family-oriented. Um, and within that culture, uh, what comes first is the family, what's best for the family and not what's best for the individual. So when a situation arises, so when um, parents and grandparents get older and they need help and they need medicine or they need um, care of any kind or they can't move, uh, the onus is on the family to take care of them. Um, And shame on the uh, man or woman that does not, uh, on the family, that doesn't um, care for and keep at home their elderly. Um, and so it, this is in contrast to uh, a sort of individualist culture like we have in the Western nations, where the society says, well, think of what's best for you and, um, and think of what, uh, what you can do or what's best for um, you know, your personal life, right? And so a lot of that has to do with um, the the way the society itself looks on the human person and on families and uh, and what it means to be an elderly person, right? And uh, Western nations, they tend to uh, after a certain amount of time, they're sort of cast off as they're no they're not useful anymore, right? And um, and and what's the good of having them around necessarily, or even if they are somewhat valued um, for say the, uh, telling old stories or whatnot, um, they're not valued enough as a member of society and as a member of the family. Whereas in the Eastern cultures, what you have is a multi generational um, society that uh, looks actually honors the elderly and listens to them and when they can't uh, function anymore or when they get old and they and they become very needy um, they are they are cared for and they are loved not cast aside and so um, 
and and so that's the basis is how that society looks at the individual person uh who is the person what is their relationship to the family uh how should that culture uh treat those institutions and um and then how do you then how do you take care of the people um that can't take care of themselves anymore in effect there's a duty of care there the expectation exactly. of such exactly uh, again, yeah. Again, with Luma Sims, a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., uh, just by way of a follow-up on our Care Gone Wrong series, cultures don't put their loved ones into nursing homes, primarily Eastern cultures, uh, or is it spread around the globe, different areas? Yes. Um, so mostly Eastern cultures. Well, let me just say this. Non-Western cultures is what I want to say. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily have to be Far East, Near East, uh, whatever, Africa. It's non-Western culture. Um, and a, a lot of that has to do with the democratization of the person, right? Um, the democratization, and I'm not saying <laughs> democracy is bad, but what I'm saying is that it sets an um, it sets up a society to, that tells each person that they matter first before anybody else, okay? And so, um, whereas, and then, and when the, their elderly uh, get sick or, or can't take care of themselves anymore, then that society uh, says, so let me, let me go back a little bit. Um, with the Eastern non-Western cultures, there is um, what's been called a stigma, right? That's not quite such a good word. Maybe we can say uh, shame. And in many ways, it's a good kind of shame. Um, and and uh, shame is another word that is uh, not well-liked in the Western culture. But shame in, such, in a good way that says it is a shame to you. It is a dishonor to you when you dishonor your elderly. Um, and the um, and there used to be a law. I'm not sure if it's still there anymore in China and other places as well. That basically says that if um, if a family member doesn't take care of their own, then the sort of the elderly uh, can sue. Now I'm not for that, and I'm not saying that's the kind of thing that we should have. But I'm saying that there needs to be stronger bonds between the family members, and there needs to be a culture that encourages those uh, those stronger the stronger bonds, and not this callous culture that we see a lot of the times in Western nations. Um, that tend to, when somebody gets old, they tend to cast them aside. Um, and so, anyway, it's a travesty. It, it really is because there's so many good elderly people, and they need love and they need attention. Um, and sometimes it's not just it's not necessarily about um, whether or not somebody feeds them, or or they're relying on somebody for food. It's that. So many of them want to be within their family. So many of them just want the love and care of people that they've they've raised themselves. Uh, so I, yeah. So that's what I'm. Anyway. Well, no, I, I found it fascinating how you know uh, you had positioned it as the democratization of the individual. I mean, and certainly uh, in certain countries or Western cultures, mythologies, the rugged individualism plays a large role versus, you know, the importance of the family unit as a collective. So uh, I heard somebody in the report as well, and I don't know who it was, say, we think poorly of those who put their loved ones into long-term care. Uh, so it's kind of a, a reverse stigma there. But sometimes is this not born out of necessity? I mean, uh, when I was saying in setting the piece up that uh, 
someone that uh, had put their mother, their elderly mother in the home, called it the benign betrayal. Uh, it wasn't because mm-hmm. it was a selfish reason, but it was born out of necessity. Uh, does that absolve somebody of guilt or being seen as uh, perhaps, you know, not meeting the duty of care? Can you see that even for certain cultures? Um. Yes and no. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to say never. Okay, um, but I would want to. I would want to know, or not necessarily know, but I want to see a culture that doesn't put people in that kind of situation in the first place. Um, I would want to see a culture that cares for that the person, whatever the 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 man or woman who then has to take care of of their elderly parent. I would want to see them getting the support that they need, whether it's um, for medical support or uh, whatever kind of support. So they do not have to resign themselves to this, even when they don't want to. And I would have to say also, um, what are, what's the, um, what are the points here that um, that this person feels that they can't uh, take care of the elderly? I and mean, what is it about them? Is it their their work situation? Is it uh, that they they're a single person? Um, we have to look. We would have to look at that and then say, well, how how can we as a society come along and support you so that you can in turn uh, support your elderly? And so this is not. So what I want to say is that this is not just um, an individual person's responsibility. And there we go again, uh, thinking about it in terms of individuals. This has to do with a society at large who that um, puts the, the priority of the family first, a society that, that supports the entire family, not just the person. And therefore, when there are people who do need to take care of their parents and grandparents, they have a society that they can rely on. They have a culture that cares about them and about the elderly, that cares about families at large, that, um, that encourages family as much as possible to stay together, and that, that has support system within, uh, within the structures of that of that society that comes along and 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 helps them to do their job i don't want to even say their job their duty like we said uh, to love and care for those people luma you know i'm kind of curious just as an aside but it's a big issue that's roiling western cultures and certainly in this country in these cultures that you cite where family you know has to step up and it's a duty of care the expectation do they have any issues with medical assisted assistance in dying do they actually even address that uh, yes, um, I, I I would say that the ethos um, of those societies is that um, you don't have a right to take the life of your elderly. Uh, if they die naturally, they die naturally, but you don't kill them because that's that's basically what you're saying. Um, and so, um, no, that's a <laughs> that's completely. Um, not acceptable. Let me just say it that way. Well, no, I, that's what I was asking. I was kind of curious because it kind of led there, uh, just speculating. So I'm thinking if you want to go broke real fast, you'll set up a nursing home in one of these uh, countries where these cultures proliferate. There would be no need for it is kind of what you've said uh, here yeah. by way of summary. They don't have these things, do they? 
No, no. And man, many of them, um, so say uh, Iraq, for instance, right? There was a time when there were no nursing homes, um, except for they would they would have what what is called um, houses for the elderly, but they, they were for the homeless elderly. Uh, and so there, there's no like a sort of nursing home, so to speak, uh, for anybody to just go and, you know, and put their, um, their mother, father, or grandparent in. Um, and those only developed, um, in my last research, there were, um, I think, two in Iraq. And that only happened after all the wars because so many people fled. And sometimes, say, the mother or the grandmother would say, no, go ahead. You, you get yourself out of here. Rescue yourself. And then they would choose to, to stay back. And then they would be by themselves um, sometimes. Um, and so those things developed out of out of dire need, and that was war, right? It's not just I don't have enough money or, or you know, we, we don't have an extra bedroom in the house. It's not that type of thing. It took wars, consecutive wars, to get to the point where a country like Iraq finally has two nursing homes, right? And so that, that ought to say something um, to the Western nations uh, about, about the primacy of of the family and about honor and um and love within the family yeah it certainly speaks to uh the disparity of a value system between cultures and uh you've really helped to highlight that this afternoon i really appreciate your weighing in on this luma thank you thank you i I thank you luma sims fellow at the ethics and public policy center in washington dc Interesting takeaway. There's another untold story that requires uh, a little more of a revisit. Mike Strobel wrote a piece in The Sun today, uh, ex-Toronto Sun columnist, now retired, uh, a libertarian of a stripe, and uh, also a bon vivant, gourmet, gourmand, and all the rest of it. He's joined us to tell us who these kids are that have been uh, caught as collateral damage in this whole thing, uh, the COVID coverage here in the province of Ontario. Mike, always a pleasure to hear from you. I appreciate you joining us this afternoon. Hey, John, it's been a while. Yeah, it has. It has. I know. Well, you're in retirement and living the good life up there near Manitoulin or on Manitoulin. By the way, but yeah. let's talk about the kids right here because this was a poignant piece. And when I read it here, I said, we got to get Strobel on because uh, the kids at Variety Village, what's the deal? What's the story? Well, you know the place, right, John? It's a, it's yep. a sports facility out in Scarborough. It caters to kids with uh, disabilities. Well, all people with disabilities and actually even even just regular people like you and me who have no disabilities, aside from, you know, old age, emotional issues. Uh, it's, it, it's a really integrated place, but it focuses on the kids. And the problem right now is that it's closed, shut. It got caught in the first uh, lockdown, and it's now, now it's caught in the second one. And the problem is that, you know, the, the, you know Doug Ford, and God bless him, he's got a, I wouldn't want his job, frankly. You know, but they bring a hammer down on, on uh during these lockdowns and in the category of, you know, recreation centers and sports facilities, uh, they just shut them all down. Well, you know, Friday Village technically falls into those categories, but it's not the same thing. You know, if you or I, you know, if our gym is closed, you know, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? You know, you get maybe a, an extra chin or, or uh, you know, you're, you're not going to look down and not be able to see your feet anymore. I mean, that's the worst thing, case of Thing that can happen these kids it's not just recreation or a workout it's therapy you know a lot of them really depend on this for for health and, and if it's taken away which it has been then uh you know bad things start to happen to these good kids you know like one little guy i know who's like 11 
uh, you know, the first lockdown and now the second lockdown, he hasn't been able to get, he has uh, cerebral palsy, he hasn't been able to get the kind of workouts and therapy he needs. Well, guess what? You know, after this, he's headed for therapy for, for a surgery. You know, they're going to have to cut his leg muscles and all kinds of nasty things to straighten out his, uh, his uh, legs. So, you know, it's not, it's kind of puts your, <laughs> kind of puts your double chin into, into perspective, you know, and, and, uh, and it's, the problem is they just got caught up in the net. And I think maybe somebody ought to take a second look at that net. Yeah, that's the thing thing that surprises me, uh, how this could have been something to fall through the cracks or overlooked or whatever the case may be, because you're right in saying if ever there was an essential service, it's this Scarborough Haven for kids with disabilities. I mean, it is an essential service, isn't it? Well, for them, it's, uh, you know, practically life or death. You know, I mean, it's, it's uh, as I say, some of these kids are without without Variety Village. You know, who knows what would happen to them? I mean, they, they're, certainly they're, it's life-changing for most of them, and in some cases it's you know, it's really, it's really affects their health, health when the village is closed down. And, you know, again, you know, it's, it's, I can understand how this happens and it's happened in other areas as well, John, but, you know, you, 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 you're trying to, you, know, you bring this sledgehammer down because you've got your, you, you've got COVID going on and everybody's worried and there's panic in the streets and everything else, you know, so you take these extreme measures and you forget that sometimes those extreme measures, you know, it's collateral damage. These kids are basically collateral damage. Um, it's understandable. But it, it could be fixed. It could be changed with a, you know, all, all somebody's got to do in, in the Ford uh, government is, is talk to Variety Village and say, how can we make this work? Well, yeah, to me, that's a phone call. Uh, you know, I'll make a phone call if it takes that. Uh, I mean, you know, we got them on speed dial anyway here at the show. But you say elite athletes, such as Olympians and Paralympians, they're allowed to keep training as they should be. And Variety Village kids, they're elite too. They fall, fall into the same category. That's kind of ironic, eh? I mean, you know, it, it, I should point out, by the way, you know, that the village kept go- has kept going since the first lockdown. They haven't had a single kid infected. And don't forget, these kids are also going to school, regular school, like everybody else. Uh, and they're really, really careful. And, uh, I, you know, I, I would never deprive the, you know, our Olympians of, of training time and everything else. But these kids deserve at least the same consideration. And, uh, you know, from a safety point of view, uh, they, they can operate just as safely as, as uh, the Pan Am Center. Um, yeah. I was going to ask you because uh, I was trying to anticipate what uh, the resistance to giving them license to, you know, do their their thing, their therapy uh, at Variety Village in the gym and the pool and all the rest of that. Is it possible because they are more susceptible or vulnerable to uh, getting infected and there would be more serious consequences? Uh, that's an obvious question, and the answer is this. There are some, you know, somebody with Down syndrome, for instance, is probably more susceptible. There are certain disabilities that you, you need to think about. It. Well, all those kids are, and, are people have stayed away. I mean, they, they don't go to the village anyway because they know perfectly well what it is. Most kids with, for instance, cerebral palsy or physical ailments, ailments physical conditions, uh, you know, they're no more susceptible than any other kid, really, uh, which, which is proved by the fact that, or shown by the fact that they haven't had any infections out there. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, and it's not, it, it boils down to this, John, really. Ultimately, almost in all cases, in my experience, kids with disabilities, people with disabilities tend to be, be kind of invisible when it comes to policy and that kind of thing. And I, I don't think it was, you know, there, there was no real intent. I don't think that, you know, that anybody in the government said, yeah, we're going to shut down Variety Village. I think they just forgot to check to make sure that when they, when they shut all these places down, they weren't letting somebody slip through the cracks that probably shouldn't have. 
Yeah, I know a lot of parents as well. You quote some in your piece. Uh, this is, again, the poignancy of it when parents, you know, on a first-hand daily basis, 24-7, see what their kids are all about and how this has uh, really made a marked change in uh, their attitudes and uh, lifestyle and all the rest of that, how integral it is to their very core of their being. Uh, it's something born out of necessity. So let's see, you know, if the attention that uh, has been paid to this through your uh, your piece and us talking about it here uh, maybe can affect a positive change. I'd really like to know what the rationale would be uh, if they'd continue to n- deny going forward. Again, uh, Mike Strobel with us, writer, Toronto Sun Daily columnist, retired. Uh, by the way, live and let live libertarian. You know, I wanted to ask you this before I let you go. Uh, you know, the whole thing with Adam Skelly and Adamson's barbecue showing a real libertarian streak, or at least it's engendered that. The question yeah. I have, because I've been conflicted on this, uh, other people, you know, facing the lockdown and maybe uh, losing their businesses, but they're all sort of singing off the same hymn sheet. What about people who break ranks? Are you in favor of that, Mike? Uh, here's the deal. I, I don't think that if you, you can break ranks as long as you're not putting anybody else into jeopardy or affecting anybody else. And it's going to be, this is a question that we're not going to be able to answer, John, until like six years from now, when when somebody's going to look back and say, some historian is going to look back and say, they screwed it up, they got it wrong, they overreacted, or somebody's going to look back and say, yeah, they got it right, and saved a bunch of people. You know, until, you know, and I tell you, you you ask anybody on the street, you ask two people on the street, 10 people on the street, and you're going to get entirely different answers from everybody. Um, I think it's. I think we're going to have to look look back on it. But there's certain things, though. You know, it's funny that the that the uh, that restaurant got all the hype and, and uh, publicity and everything else. And you know, I don't, I don't. I, that's not that's not wrong. But to me, these kids are the ones who you know kind of deserve the special look because that is a, a problem that could be solved. That's a situation that could be resolved real quick. Um, you know, Variety Village doesn't make barbecue, <laughs> but they they do a lot of very important things. Right. And finally, uh, because I know uh, you had weighed in a couple of weeks ago with the situation on Manitoulin, your uh, cabin is up there near Gore Bay, uh, where the OPP officer was shot. How's the community responding now? How's it handling things? Well, I think I would say that a lot of people kind of uh, learned the hard way that, you know what, as beautiful as this place is, as idyllic as it is, and as peaceful as it generally is, we're still part of a pretty violent world, you know, and, and, uh, and I think a lot of people are kind of uh, waking up to that to that reality. You know, it's a, it's a resilient place, though, John. It'll it'll bounce back, and, and ultimately, it's a very uh, uh, you know landscape and nature are the are the real thing up here, and, and that's that hasn't changed at all. It's just some there was you know a bad apple or two. That's essentially what happened, and a tragedy happened, and uh, and people will move on eventually. But it's it's changed the place, no question. Continue to enjoy your retirement. Thanks so much for the time and this piece, and uh, let's see if we get some action on that. Let's stay in the loop on this one and uh, see if we can affect a positive outcome for the kids who are, uh, you know, see this as an essential thing uh, at Variety Village out in Scarborough. Mike Strobel, writer for the Toronto Daily Sun, uh, retired, but also uh, living the good life at his cabin on Manitoulin Island. Appreciate your time, Mike. It's really good to talk. Take care, John. That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Wednesday, November 18th. What? That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Tuesday, December 1st, 2020. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. You can listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. 
Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 